Most of what we know about the abduction phenomenon comes from cases documented in America. In fact, just from the cases you know by heart, the average layperson may think of it as a purely American phenomenon. Perhaps this is because the American government was so quick to study the phenomenon. We had the money to do it, we had the resources, and we had the concern. Really, our study of the UFO phenomenon comes from a complete state of helplessness. If you're the most technologically advanced country in the world, what is there to fear? The American government has feared UFOs since 1948, when the plane piloted by Thomas F. Mantell crashed in Franklin, Kentucky, while in pursuit of a UFO. A historical plaque stands near the site where the plane was found. Since then, our government has lived in fear, and it escalated. In the summer of 1952, on two consecutive weekends, UFOs were seen flying over the nation's capital. This alarmed the government so much that they allowed the CIA to dictate the terms of Project Blue Book's mission from 1953 until it was shuttered in 1969. Abductions, though, were something different entirely. The word conjures up a real fear for many people, and for some that never knew they needed a fear for the subject. Abductions are a form of isolation. More often than not, they are experienced alone. In a home of five residents, one of them may come forward claiming that a small group of strange beings stood at their bedside staring before they completely blacked out and woke up in their bed hours later with a strange feeling that something wasn't right with the world they lived in. In the case of abductions, it's rare that a foreign case comes to mind. The trinity of UFO abduction cases can be boiled down to these. Betty and Barney Hill, the Pascagoula abduction, and the abduction of Travis Walton. Our Strange Skies itself has covered only one abduction case outside the United States. In episode 5, the analog abduction, we looked at the capture of Antonio Villas-Boas, a Brazilian farmer, by strange, vaguely human-looking entities. In this episode, we're heading to the UK to talk about a case that combines elements of all three of our otherworldly trinity. According to the UFO Investigators Network, in their pamphlet covering the experience of the Avis family, this case set the scene for how abductions in the United Kingdom would be investigated. My name is Rob Christofferson, and this is episode 15 of the Our Strange Skies podcast. By 1974, two abduction cases had been widely reported enough to roll off the tongue of the average layperson. The first, of course, being the Betty and Barney Hill abduction, which we've previously covered, 
The second case, also a part of our trinity, is the abduction of Charlie Hickson and Calvin Parker from a pier in Pascagoula, Mississippi. The government had dismissed the handful of abduction cases that came to their attention. Project Blue Book attempted to dismiss the cases up front. First, they claimed that Betty and Barney Hill had viewed advertising searchlights at 10.30 at night. When the government realized that was incredibly dumb, and that there would be no use for searchlights on a long, lonely stretch of road, they claimed the couple had simply watched the planet Jupiter from their car. The only other case to receive government attention was the 1967 abduction of Herbert Shermer, a patrolman from the town of Ashland, Nebraska. His case was studied by the Condon Committee, which ultimately ruled that Shermer was an unreliable witness, despite being well-educated, multilingual, and a trained observer. The case of the Avis family is unique for the number of eyewitnesses involved, three, and for a number of things that happened to them after their encounter. For all intents and purposes, this event would change the Avis family forever, and for the man who investigated the case, Andrew Collins, it was one of the most important cases ever. On Sunday, October 27, 1974, the Avis family drove to the house of the matriarch's family, Elaine, at Harold Hill in Essex. Elaine's sister had traveled to Belgium on a week-long trip and had to be picked up from her school, and while her father went to meet her, the Avis family watched over the home. Elaine and her husband John had both dropped out of school in their teens to learn trades and take up vocations. John left at 15 and, and apprenticed in building trades for a number of years. He had a knack for reading and doing things with his hands, and worked for a number of years as a carpenter. On some nights, he would work as a disc jockey at a local radio station. Elaine left school at the age of 16 to become an accountant. During that time, she met John and soon left her job to become a stay-at-home parent. Together, they had three children. Karen, age 11, Kevin, age 10, and Stuart, age 7, at the time of their encounter in 1974. For some unknown reason, the return from Belgium had been delayed. The bus that should have arrived at 5 p.m. made its destination at around 9 that night. This slightly annoyed John, as he wanted to catch a play at 10.20. He was relieved when they returned shortly after 9. The drive home was a 20-minute journey, so not that far by standards. Karen and Stuart slept in the back, while Kevin casually glanced out the window at the open fields and passing hedgerows. The roads were bare, and on more than one occasion, John mentioned this to Elaine. To assuage his slight unease, he turned the radio band to a talk show. Few houses were brave enough to call the side of Hackton Lane home. You were more apt to find farmer's fields, small lakes, and reservoirs. Trees populated the area more than people did, and perhaps they noticed the light first. Kevin was first to see it. 
He quickly called his parents' attention to a pair of houses to the east. Above them, a pale blue iridescent dot followed along with the car. It made jerky movements, starting and stopping, like a new driver behind the wheel of a car. It was briefly obscured by a copse of trees, but on the other side, it was there, like a clock on a wall. Whatever the light was, it maintained a distance of about 500 yards from the Avis family. Their Vauxhall Victor estate veered left onto Park Farm Road and passed the White Hart, a public building that was bustling with activity. Shadows from its interior were seen to move about, and yet the roads were empty save for the Avis family. The object changed course as John turned onto Avily and headed straight for them. It passed in front of the vehicle before they lost sight of it behind a hedgerow. They drove on for another mile, passing a small gravel pit. Another right-hand turn came up near the site of four terraced houses. They looked on like long, tall shadows, distorted by a distant light. John, Elaine, and Kevin felt uneasy. Something felt wrong. It took them a moment to realize that all sound had gone away. Greeting them in the middle of the road was a dense wall of mist, nine feet tall, in a shade of green different from the hedgerows on either side of it. The radio began to crackle and smoke. It got so bad that John had to pull it out of its center console. The headlights went dead, and the engine cut out as the car coasted into the fog. For a moment, the car jerked violently. Silence governed all within. It felt cold inside the green mist, and there was a tingling sensation that coursed through their bodies. Everything became hazy and dreamlike. Memory faded like the last notes of a song. It was a few seconds before the car jolted again, and the mist was gone. They had moved half a mile down the road from their last conscious memory. And John looked, and he was alone in the front seat. Elaine's first memory was a half mile later, when she turned off the dome light once all were accounted for in the vehicle. Everyone, except for the two sleeping Avis children, were nervous and afraid. The rest of their short trip home was a blank canvas. John rewired the radio and tested the headlights, which worked just fine. The clock on their kitchen wall said that it was past 1 a.m., three hours later than it should have been. After this incident, the car would have a number of problems until the day they sold it. The crankshaft cracked not long after, and in the days and months ahead, would require a new engine and a new clutch every hundred miles or so. The next day, John and Elaine both felt exhausted. John called in to work that morning and slept until 11 that afternoon. The Avis family would go through some significant changes following the encounter. For starters, in December, John had a nervous breakdown, which cost him his job. He remained unemployed until September of 1975, when a job he had previously applied for came to him. 
He began writing poetry shortly after the encounter, spontaneously. Elaine started taking college courses in September of 1975, and Kevin, who was having difficulty reading, soon improved and moved past the other children in his grade. The majority of the family, with the exception of Stuart, became vegetarians. John kicked a heavy smoking habit and gave up drinking as well, and he did it all cold turkey. The Avis family became more self-confident and conscious of the environment around them and conscious about the food that they put into their bodies. Whatever this encounter was, it seemed to have a positive effect. On the flip side, years of strange phenomenon would plague the Avis family. This would range from being followed in their car to poltergeist activity in their home. In the days following the encounter, John noticed that he was being tailed by three separate cars at any given time. A red sports car, a blue Jaguar, and a large white car of some kind. In early 1975, the family heard loud voices coming from a Corona MK2 that was sitting on the street. Two men were being incredibly loud and continued to talk through 1 a.m. Having had enough... John phoned the police that night to complain about the noise, and though he never gave them his exact address, a knock came on his door five minutes later. This man displayed odd mannerisms. He looked through the mail slot and claimed to be an officer, though he really didn't look the part. John pointed to the men in the car, and with that, the officer walked toward them. Both the officer and the white car left a short time later. For a month in 1975, John was stopped multiple times a week and presented with a five-day wonder note, meaning that he had to produce documents for the local police within the span of five days. Every time he did this, they were baffled, claiming that they didn't know who was doing this to him, until finally John confronted one of the officers, threatening to report him to the chief constable. He was never stopped after that. Items would disappear at random in the house. These were mostly children's school supplies, items like pens, pencils, a hole punch, and even a roll of film mysteriously went missing. One event happened while Elaine was talking to her sister on the phone. In mid-conversation, a door that was always latched flew open on its own, and with it came the smell of lavender. Outside their home, loud humming sounds could be heard. Sometimes it would slowly dissipate. On other occasions, it would begin and end just as abruptly. In their living room, John and Elaine would hear strange sounds that they compared to a rustling noise. When they would approach the sound, it would back away from them. And in their bedroom, John and Elaine would hear a burst of indecipherable beeps, lasting for about a minute at a time. During the investigation of the case, researcher Andrew Collins witnessed a book he had given John move from one room to the other of its own accord. On one visit, he recalled having to sleep on their sofa due to thick fog. The crashing sounds of pots and pans woke him from a deep sleep. He was gripped by an instant fear, but in response, an unusual sense of peace and calm came over him, 
and he drifted off. Even Kevin was not immune to strange happenings in the Avis home. One night in 1975 or 76, he claimed to see a man dressed up like a clown standing next to his bed. He couldn't remember much about this incident, only that this man was allegedly wearing white. The family cat disappeared for a period of six to eight weeks and reappeared in perfect health. At times, it would walk into the living room and hiss at a corner of the room until it backed away. And, as with most high strangeness cases, the weirdness extended to the phone. Often, when a member of the Avis family would pick up the receiver, they would hear nothing but silence or the sound of someone hanging up a receiver in mid-conversation. On three separate occasions, Elaine answered the phone, only to hear heavy breathing. Now, it should be noted that John and Elaine had a history of UFO sightings throughout the years. While on vacation on the coast of Essex, the couple caught sight of a large, flat, star-like object moving erratically over the water. The darting object was seen by 10 to 15 eyewitnesses for about 10 minutes before it disappeared out to sea. In a second incident in 1968, John was returning from a business trip with a group of colleagues on the M1 motorway near London. Everyone in the car caught sight of a bluish-white light that was approaching their position. They all looked on as the brake lights of the car in front of them grew brighter and then extinguished. The strange light had zoomed past them, and when it had, the two cars collided. Nobody was hurt, but all were puzzled. They stood in the road discussing what had happened for a few minutes before one of the men phoned the police. They explained everything that had happened, and the officer confirmed that there had been a rash of UFO sightings reported that evening. Days before the Green Mist encounter took place, John caught sight of a strange object tailing a plane. It was 8.30 in the morning, and he was riding into work when he looked out of his window and caught sight of a cylindrical object. It was twice the size of the airliner it was tailing, and silver in color. He observed it for mere seconds before the object shot past the plane and disappeared. The entire Avis family had an encounter that played out similarly to the Green Mist encounter. While on a long-distance trip, the family caught sight of a bluish star that kept pace with their car. It kept descending to about treetop level and followed the family for approximately 50 miles. The object would ascend and descend again and again. The radio would crackle when it came closer. The car's engine nearly stalled multiple times by the light of the ovular craft. It would eventually climb high at a fast rate of speed, disappearing like a star that climbed too high. Every abduction account is like a coin. Every story has two sides. Heads, the main account, lights in the sky, 
green mist on the isolated road. In our story, the coin now shows us tales. Andrew Collins' first indication that there may be something deeper to their experiences came through interviewing the couple. They both remembered fragments of dreams that seemed to suggest they had been taken on board a craft and that their 10-year-old son, Kevin, was brought on board too. Elaine had a memory more intact and described interacting with beings and even drew some of them. Hypnosis was suggested, though John was the only one that felt comfortable enough with the procedure. What makes this case unique is the recall of each adult, one through hypnosis, the other through an improving memory. Where they cross is really interesting. If we hit the rewind button to the moment the car entered the green mist, both John and Elaine became aware of a pillar of white light outside of the car. The light approached the car and before long latched onto it. The car shuddered Kevin, who was standing on the back seat, was thrown back into it. Then, John and Elaine both blacked out. Now, the couple stares down from a balcony at their car, and at themselves in a large hangar. From John's perspective, the entire family was still in the car, but Elaine recalls that John, herself, and Kevin were standing in front of it. They were looking at themselves. On the balcony, Kevin stood in front of Elaine, and both were incredibly terrified. A tall entity stood behind them. John identified this individual as the one in charge, and claimed the being to be six foot eight inches tall. John, Elaine, and Kevin are led to a room through a hole that appeared in a wall, and it is here that they are separated. It's unclear what Kevin's experience was like on board, but for John and Elaine, we will take time with each of their accounts before everyone is reunited at the car. John feels as if he's ascending as he moves through rooms until he is led to a room with a table and a set of lights shining down on it. One of the tall beings, as he calls them, touches John on the shoulder and blacks out again. There are a number of these figures, and he estimates their height at six foot six inches. The exception is the leader, who apparently was two inches taller. Their body was covered with a material that resembled synthetic felt. Their skin was very pale, bordering on translucent. But their most stunning feature was their eyes. They were a creamy pink color. They walked gracefully in short steps, their mouth and nose covered by a mask that made them resemble a surgeon or a mortal combat ninja. The beings that conducted the examination of his body were shorter and far stranger. These four-foot-tall beings wore flowing gowns with long, loose sleeves. Their hands and face were covered in bushy brown hair. Their large, craggy ears jutted from the side of their head, and their eyes were large and completely white. Their noses looked more like beaks, and their mouths were just small lines. 
Suspended 18 inches above John was a bar that appeared to be scanning his body. This rectangular object, three feet long, was suspended by two cables running to the ceiling. There were three larger beings standing off to the side, while two examiners attended to John. One of them carried an eight-inch-long rod in its four-fingered hand and moved it along John's body. It had an intense white light on one end, while the other was attached to a thin wire that ran to a black box. Both of these scans created warm, tingling sensations whenever it would pass over an area of his body. Once the examination was complete, John sat up and immediately started to ask his tall communicator questions. He asked them what they did once they were outside the ship. The leader indicated that they wore a visor that resembled a welder's helmet. It bore a lighted bar on top to help them see at night. The being's answers at times tended to be convoluted. Quote, We find this unfortunate because we see through your eyes for most purposes. There are many occasions when we cannot find suitable eyes, so we use the visor to change your lights to match our optic nerves. John asks him about the lack of color on the ship, and the being states that his optic nerves wouldn't be able to detect colors that they could see. The tall leader shows John around the ship upon request. He leads him from room to room, first to a room with boxes on a table and a number of couches for leisure, then to a laboratory with a complex microscope that resembled a giant hologram. The next room had three tiers of stacked couches, believed to be sleeping quarters for the crew. Each of these couches undulated slightly and was covered in what looked like bubble wrap. John was able to lay on one of the couches briefly. It was like a sun lounge chair and incredibly comfortable. Above his head was a kind of television-like device that projected images lightning fast. Too fast to remember. But he had brief memories of an image of our solar system. He recalls a picture of Saturn and that there was verbal accompaniment. These star charts were annotated with strange symbols he couldn't decipher. Some of them showed stars connected with strange lines, similar to what Betty Hill had seen. These, he was told, were what we refer to as ley lines. The leader called these the, quote, diagrams of the workings of the lock, but not the key. The final image took the form of a desolate planet, all but dead. It was the planet of the strange beings, ruined by pollution and natural disasters. Their planet had two suns that were now lost, as was one of their moons. The beings showed him colors of all kinds and metallic structures that represented cities. He could feel the life leaving the planet through the surface of the couch. The craft itself was enormous. It contained three levels overall, the top reserved for the controls of the ship, the second containing all the rooms John was taken through, and the bottom housed the large hangar that the car was sitting in, and each room was ovular in shape. Elaine's experience mirrors John's in many ways. 
Once they were separated, she moved along to an opening with Kevin. Kevin was ushered past into another room, despite Elaine's protests. In the room she was taken to stand two tables, one slightly concave, the other flat. Elaine was escorted to the flat table, where a strap was attached to her legs and arms. It was cushioned in a bubble-type wrap, similar to the couches John had lain on. Two of the examiners, exactly as John described, used a pen-light-like device to examine her. They made a humming sound as they examined her as well. John claimed to hear them make an almost chirping-like sound. But excitement ensued when they reached the kidney on her left side. She was advised that they couldn't do anything with her until some unnamed problem was treated. The tall being placed two fingers on her forehead, and she lost consciousness again. She was still on the table when she woke again, this time wearing a long gown with a tight hood, similar to the ones worn by the tall beings. She was escorted to the control room by one of the tall beings, past John in a long corridor. The room was a flurry of activity, but there was one individual sitting alone in a chair. This was the being that communicated with her. The being held out a tray that contained a dozen disc-shaped objects that resembled cookies. She feared that they may be drugged and was hesitant to take one. And in response, the creature pulled back, fearing to make Elaine uncomfortable. The leader then requested one of the other beings play her music. It began to twiddle its hands slowly, producing a sound like that of a harp. Everyone had a talent on the ship, the being told her. But Elaine's only concern was for her children. She was reassured that they were indeed safe and that humans were their children. She was ushered to the controls to see how the ship operated. There were panels with colored lights and the being asked her to touch it. The button she pressed helped the craft bank to the left, though nothing happened when she pressed it. The entity then asked if she wanted to see her planet. She agreed, and through a small screen, three feet long by one foot wide, an image of the Earth grew larger. She could see Great Britain as the image came closer and closer until she could see Avalee Road in all its intricacies. Like John, she was escorted across the room to a series of couches and asked to lie down on one of them. She was shown a series of maps, charts, and images on a disc-shaped screen. Elaine managed to recall more she was shown an image of the solar system, but with 11 planets instead of 9. She was shown where the beings came from, and it was alluded to that the human beings were the seed of the future. Her last few moments on the craft were hazy, but she found herself in her room redressing, telling John and Kevin that they needed to get a move on. She was offered some type of liquid in a bowl that she rushed to finish, she was standing in an ovular space with stairs that wrapped around the entire room and descended. The car was sitting on a catwalk. Elaine didn't want to leave, and the beings told her that she could stay, even though she knew that she couldn't. 
The car with John and Kevin back inside fizzled away, dematerializing off the ship. The room grew very bright when it did. Elaine grew concerned. The being gently reassured her that there was nothing to worry about, that she would catch up. Her next conscious moment was back inside the car, asking if everyone was present, and the world returned to a place they all recognized again. John and Elaine's story is a seminal classic for British ufology, and yet little information is available. The most complete account comes to us from the pages of Flying Saucer Review, which you can find in the links to the show notes for this episode. It's unclear whether the Avis family continued to have experiences after their hypnotic sessions. Their story ends abruptly, but not before revealing one of the most harrowing and incredible abduction accounts in history. This episode was written and recorded by me. Thank you so much for listening. I want to remind you that you have one week left to get your entries in for our big book giveaway. Here's a reminder of the books that uh, we're giving away. Communion and The Secret School by Whitley Strieber. Incident at Exeter and The Interrupted Journey by John G. Fuller. UFO Contact at Pascagoula by Charles Hickson and William Mendez. Encounter at Buff Ledge by Walter Webb, and The UFO Controversy in America by David M. Jacobs. If you want to check out some of my other work, I host a podcast with my good buddy Brian Hasty called The Coda, a music podcast. We talk music news and have in-depth discussions about various topics like great side projects, experimental albums, and we recently had on Spencer from the What If podcast and Lydia Liza to talk about their new album, Oh Boy, which you should totally go listen to. It's amazing. You can find The Coda, a music podcast, anywhere you get your podcasts. For links to show notes, social media profiles, our P.O. Box, Patreon, and store, head on over to OurStrangeGuys.com, your one-stop shop for this podcast. Our theme song was composed by Big Cats, with additional music from Blue Dot Sessions, and our logo and web design is by the great Desdemona. And finally, don't forget to look up, because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies. We're at treetop level on Avely Road. In Grey We Trust.